This episode is brought to you by ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people, for employees, for developers, and even your customers, removing frustration and supercharging productivity. On our intelligent platform, AI isn't just a promise. It's happening today. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Tap the banner to learn more or visit servicenow.com slash AI for people. One of President Trump's biggest campaign promises was to get rid of the trade agreement NAFTA. The NAFTA disaster, I call it. One of the worst trade deals in the history of any country. Trump called NAFTA a job-killing deal that needed to be undone. And that promise to undo it helped propel him to victory in 2016. They came and they went to Washington and they did nothing. But unlike those politicians, I keep my promises. Now, he's closer than ever before to getting rid of NAFTA. This week, Congress agreed to vote on the new trade agreement that would replace it, called the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement. But while Trump claims victory here, so do the people who often antagonize him, House Democrats. It's a victory for America's workers. It's one that we take great pride, great pride in advancing. Today on the show, how two sides that are opposed on so many issues both came to see this one deal as a victory, and what's actually in the deal that made that possible. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. And I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Thursday, December 12th. I think I'm here to, to help record a podcast on NAFTA. That's my uh, that's my goal. Hold on, wait a minute. I didn't think this was on NAFTA. I thought this was on USMSA. I don't know what did they call it. Well, some people jokingly call it USMACA. USMACA, really? Yes, but officially USMCA. You you officially you have to say all five letters. Josh Zumbrun covers economics and trade out of D.C. He's been closely watching how USMACA or USMCA came together and why it matters. This really rewrites the rules of trade for all of North America. Mexico and Canada are the number one and number two trading partners of the United States. And this is the deal that governs trade on this whole continent, basically. And so because of how you know big the U.S. is, how big this trade is, this is really kind of the world's largest trade deal. The old rules of trade between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico were established under NAFTA. NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, was a Republican idea. Ronald Reagan first campaigned on the idea of creating this North American free trade zone. We live on a continent whose three countries possess the assets to make it the strongest, most prosperous, and self-sufficient area on Earth. Of course, the Republican Party had traditionally been the party of free trade. And under George H.W. Bush, the first George Bush, The U.S., Canada, and Mexico really set about and negotiated this trade deal, but they weren't able to quite finish it under George Bush's presidency. And so it fell to Bill Clinton to finally pass the deal. It passed in 1994, 25 years ago. One of the ideas behind NAFTA was that it would help keep American companies competitive. Globalization was bringing new players onto the scene, and American industries needed help to keep up. One example 
is the American auto industry. So, you know, you think of General Motors, Ford as these quintessential American companies. But the only way they can compete with automakers in Asia or in Europe is to be able to have those Mexican factories that aren't as expensive to operate as the American ones. That's the only way the American industry is kind of able to hold its costs comparable to its foreign competitors. So you have to have this integrated North American chain of factories for autos to be able to compete. Okay, that's the economics of the auto industry. But what does NAFTA do to make that a possibility? The U.S. has a lot of restrictions and and barriers that exist for most countries to try to do business with. And that's especially the case in the automobile industry. You know, if you want to bring a pickup truck into the United States that's manufactured in Europe or Asia, you have to pay a 25% tariff. You want to bring in a $40,000 pickup truck with a 25% tariff, that's an extra $10,000 in the cost just from the tariff. Mexico and Canada are the only countries that get outside of that tariff as part of their membership in NAFTA. And so you can put a pickup truck factory in Mexico, do that final assembly with Mexican wages, bring it into the U.S. at a price that is still attractive to American consumers. And so it's all these things that are what allow the economics of a trade agreement to work. And so for 25 years, NAFTA has been the uh, the rules of the road. I mean, it's been what governed economic relations between the three countries here in North America. And generally, how have those 25 years been viewed? You know, most economists would say that NAFTA has overall been a great success. The trade between the three countries has grown enormously. And so most people would look at this and say it was a success. But there were always critics. And of course, President Trump became the most important You know, President Trump said when he was campaigning that NAFTA was the worst trade deal ever made. NAFTA was the worst trade deal in the history. It's like the history of this country. NAFTA has destroyed New England. Ohio has lost nearly one in three manufacturing jobs since NAFTA. Disastrous and totally disastrous NAFTA. NAFTA, one of the worst trade deals ever signed in the history of our country, perhaps The worst ever signed in the history, frankly, of the world. You think of American manufacturing over the past 20 years, and there have definitely been a lot of factories that have closed and have gone overseas, and a lot of those did go to Mexico. And so that's been the critique of President Trump. He said that these deals had allowed companies to kind of suck the U.S. labor market away, that these deals had allowed Mexico to take advantage of the U.S. and kind of steal U.S. jobs. And that was, you know, a critique of Bernie Sanders as well. And it's been a critique of a lot of labor unions that NAFTA kind of sucked jobs out of the U.S. and put them in Mexico. You know, it's tough for a politician to go to people in a town where that happened and say, well, overall, the U.S. economy is much better off. And, you know, yes, your town lost all its jobs, but, you know, the U.S. is a 300 million person country, blah, blah, blah. It's not a very compelling argument to give to people who actually did lose their jobs from this deal. And one person who put it eloquently said, I think this was the Harvard economist Danny Roderick, who said something like trade deals produce more winnings than losings. But it doesn't necessarily mean they produce more winners than losers. There's a lot of people that can still miss out from these types of deals. And and there certainly are those people. I mean, that shouldn't be lost in this discussion. It was that message that helped President Trump win key industrial states in his election. So when Trump took office, 
making major changes to NAFTA was at the top of his agenda. What did Canada and Mexico say about this idea of renegotiating NAFTA when it came up? All three countries knew that there were kind of some issues that it would be worth updating. One is that 1994, you almost had no internet, right? But now, you think about how much commerce happens on the internet. So there was a sense that everyone had that it would be really worthwhile to come in and put some rules on digital trade. Another really big example is that a quarter century ago, Mexico's government owned its oil industry. It was a nationalized industry. And since then, that industry has been privatized. And so that means that in the original NAFTA, there were really no rules at all about trade in energy. All three countries are big energy countries, actually, and they didn't have energy provisions in their trade agreement. So there were, you know, there were a handful of examples like that out there where everyone knew it made some sense to update it. But people were really afraid of how President Trump was going to conduct the negotiation. And in April of 2017, President Trump made his opening salvo. He threatened first to just pull out of NAFTA entirely, just blow it up entirely and go back to the rules that had been in place 25 years ago. It would have been a real mess for people. That threat shook financial markets and led to a flurry of calls to the White House from business executives. And it was two other calls, one from the Mexican president and another from the prime minister of Canada, that helped convince Trump to start negotiating instead. The negotiators held like a dozen rounds of, of meetings. They would have a summit in Canada. They would have a summit in Mexico. They would have a summit here in Washington. They would go back and forth. And it just looked like it was one of those things that wasn't going anywhere. And President Trump just got fed up with how slowly his trade agenda was moving. And so President Trump decided, you know what, I am really going to use tariffs as a tool to get people to the negotiating table. And how did he do that? The first major tariffs he announced, March of 2018, were against steel and aluminum. And he used an interesting law. He used a law called Section 232 of a trade act from 1962 that allows you to impose tariffs if you determine there's a threat to national security. Under this Cold War era law, the president was able to say that importing metal like steel and aluminum from other countries had hurt America's ability to make weapons, tanks, and aircraft. And that, according to a report from the Commerce Department, was a threat to national security. It was a giant shock to kind of the global trading system when they did this. Almost everyone, every major trading partner, got hit with steel and aluminum tariffs. And that was kind of the moment that, that really did spur things forward. It led to a lot of anger in the countries that were hit, but it did accelerate the pace of negotiations. Jumpstart them. It jumpstarted them, absolutely. I mean, steel and aluminum are big industries in North American trade. So this was a big deal for Mexico and Canada. And interestingly is he imposed these tariffs on Canada right before a major G7 summit where the world's kind of leading economies all get together. And Canada was the host of it that year. That's a power move. It's a power move. It's a heck of a gamble. And I think even now a lot of people would question, you know, whether or not it was worth it. I remember you know, this press conference that the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau gave after those tariffs went into effect. And he delivered this line about 
These were national security tariffs. And he said, these tariffs are totally unacceptable. For 150 years, Canada has been the United States' most steadfast ally. From the beaches of Normandy to the mountains of Afghanistan, Americans and Canadians have fought and died together. How can you label us a national security threat? It led to a really kind of severe strain, I think, in trust between these two countries. So after the G7, what happened? It was a little bit of a tricky road to to get negotiations back on track. And in fact, President Trump used another tariff threat to galvanize things. He threatened that he was going to use those same national security tariffs, but instead of doing it on steel and aluminum, he was going to do it on automobiles and auto parts. He was talking about putting 25% tariffs on every automobile and every auto part coming into the United States. It would have been almost $400 billion of imports every single year. So that threat is actually bigger than everything that's happened in the U.S.-China trade war put together. Some people compared this to kind of like threatening a nuclear bomb or something in the trade space. I mean, that's how big of a deal this was seen to be. Going nuclear brought Mexico back to the table. The U.S. and Mexico came close to agreeing to their own deal, and eventually that brought Canada back to the table, too. The three countries finally came to an agreement last year in October. But that agreement still had to be approved by Congress. The amazing thing is that even once you have all three countries agreeing to this thing, you've still got to get Congress to vote on it. And it's kind of funny. I mean, when they were doing this in in 2018, you had a Republican-controlled Senate. You had a Republican-controlled House. But then, November of 2018, the Republicans lost the House of Representatives. And so suddenly, you had a completely different landscape. It's great that you have Mexico and Canada agreeing, but you have to get Democrats in the House of Representatives to support this trade deal now. What convinced the Democrats to get on board? That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Workday. Get the whole band together with Workday and pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance. With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever. And you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rock star with Workday. Visit Workday.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI enables rapid access to secure, traceable, hallucination-free insights from enterprise systems, all while using any LLM, helping enterprises turn the invisible into the obvious. Learn more at c3.ai. Welcome back. The Democrats have spent the past year renegotiating parts of the USMCA. And this week, they've announced what the final version looks like. There are new rules about energy, digital data, generic drug manufacturing. There are rules that give U.S. dairy farmers more access to Canada and rules that require more vehicle parts be made by workers who earn at least $16 an hour, which might help boost U.S. auto manufacturing. There's a lot in it. But for Democrats, probably the biggest one of all was the labor issue. Why was that the biggest issue? 
you know, Democrats have been a little worried, I think, at how successful President Trump had been at appealing to people in the labor union community. The Democrats have viewed labor unions as like their traditional, one of their traditional bases and one of their traditional centers of power. And so for a Republican president to come in and do something that the labor unions like actually kind of liked was pretty alarming to them. So what did the Democrats negotiate for? They wanted to make sure that Mexican factory workers had better standards. They didn't want Mexican factories to just be like the very bottom of the barrel, just dirt cheap wages, no safety standards, no quality standards. They wanted to raise kind of the floor on Mexican factories so that the difference between an American factory and a Mexican factory wasn't so severe. Right. So what the Democrats essentially are trying to do is kind of bring over some of the factory standards from the U.S. to Mexico, where there aren't such strong labor unions, in an attempt to even the playing field and essentially help American factories. Exactly. Okay, so the Democrats spend a year renegotiating this trade deal. And in the end, how different is what we have now from NAFTA? There are kind of significant provisions in a few of these areas like energy, digital trade, labor, auto rules. But overall, probably 80 percent of trade or something like that, it's going to be pretty much the same between the new deal and the old deal. Economists have told the journal that this new agreement won't bring an economic boom to the U.S., though there will be some benefits in particular industries like agriculture, technology and manufacturing. Those benefits could take years to see. But for now, Josh says there's a more immediate impact. The big effect here is actually just having this uncertainty resolved. You know, there's probably been a lot of companies who were trying to figure out exactly what they were going to do with their business operations. You know, are you going to build a new factory in the U.S.? Are you going to build a new factory in Mexico? Are you going to hire a Mexican factory as one of your key suppliers? There's a lot of decisions like this that I think have been on hold. And so now that you have an agreement in place, there's a lot of those things where there's no reason to wait anymore. You know that you're going to be able to have a Mexican supplier for your factory in Tennessee. You know, you know you're going to be able to get Canadian steel for your plant across the lake in Michigan. And so people can kind of get things going again. And if USMCA is not that different from NAFTA, do you think it really is a victory for the president? I think it is. I mean, the campaign pledge was to renegotiate the deal, and they did that. The president's policy win comes at an incredibly tense time. Just an hour before House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced this deal, she held a different press conference to announce that Democrats were moving forward with two articles of impeachment against the president. So on one hand, the Democrats are trying to impeach the president, and on the other, they're working with him to achieve this major trade victory. Can you talk about the politics of this moment and why they would do that? I think a lot of Democrats, especially those who are in districts where trade is very important, couldn't afford to have this deal fall apart and have it be their fault. I mean, a lot of them are fairly pro-business themselves, and they don't want to be the ones responsible for, for wrecking the economy in their district. Democrats have a lot of kind of self-interest in supporting this deal as well. 
So it's not like they were handing him a, a victory for no reason. You know, if you're a moderate Democrat and you're in one of these districts that elected a Democrat to Congress, but maybe it voted for President Trump by a couple of percentage points, you know, now those guys are able to do commercials where they say, you know, when the president was doing good things, I worked with the president. I'm not someone who opposes every good thing that Washington tries to do. The USMCA goes into effect once it's passed by all three countries' legislative bodies. In the U.S., the House is expected to vote on the trade agreement next week, with the Senate taking it up in the new year. That's all for today, Thursday, December 12th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Special thanks to Will Malden for his reporting. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. 